the Pediatric Lounge, a podcast taking you behind the door of the Physician's Lounge to get a deeper insight into just what docs are talking about today. From the clinically profound to the wonderfully routine and everything in between. Hi, George. Good to see you again. Hey, Dr. Bravo. We are here on the Pediatric Lounge, elevating great physicians once again. And today we have Dr. Robert Saul, and we're going to talk about his book, Conscience Parenting. It's pretty interesting stuff. So let's take it away. Hi, Dr. Saul. It's great to see you and have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here today. We always start by asking people, why did you become a pediatrician? Oh, that's a good question. I was decided to go to medical school late. That is, it wasn't until I was a junior in, in college that I decided to go to medical school. So I had to cram all my science courses in the last two years. And my first wife and I got involved as foster parents in taking care of children with disabilities. So that certainly piqued my interest. And as I got into medical school, I wanted to do everything. I wanted to be an internist, a radiologist, a dermatologist, not a surgeon. I was okay with that. Not OB. I realized as I got closer to the end and tried to figure out what I wanted to do, pediatrics was where I was at. So it wasn't by default, but I think it was by my experience as a foster parent and seeing what families go through and, and seeing the trials and tribulations of children that that led me in that direction. Interesting. Wow. What, what was a, a transitional internship like in 1976 at Duke? That doesn't it, exist anymore in pediatrics. No, it was hard. It was a lot of work. You know, we used to have those hundred hour weeks. We were on call every third night. And I remember one month we were on call every other night until we had a resonant rebellion to fight against, against that. But at the same time, at least my, my faculty was very nurturing and was understood what we were going through. And despite the stresses and strains, they were there, definitely there to help and, and nurture us through that. So I do remember one time, one night, oh gosh, it was about 3 a.m. And the chief resident came up to the call room and said, I've got your fourth admission. And I was just working up my first admission. And I remember just breaking down in tears, but I got through it. Yeah, it real did. Well, what's the, the concept of transitional year and that internship? What was it? Did you go through like OB, surgery, pediatrics, and internal medicine or whatever you wanted? No, actually for my residency, all three years were pediatrics. I mean, it felt transitional because it's the transition to being a newly minted doctor with a diploma uh, and a doctor that now has some responsibility. Okay. No, in that sense, I felt very transitional. Of course, I still feel transitional. That's okay. So you've had a long and storied career. You've written four books. What do you think is the biggest change in pediatric that you have seen during your career that's made the biggest thing? I was thinking about that question and that there's probably so many things, but a couple things came to mind quickly. One is vaccines. I remember when I was a resident, you know, I signed too many death certificates for illnesses that people don't even see now. Hamophilus uh, influenza meningitis, haemophilus influenza, epiglottitis, pneumococcal meningitis. And because when I started in practice in 1979, the only vaccines we had were, you know, DPT and maybe threw in some measles. And so it was that dramatic change. And that's been so hard and discouraging 
seeing the sort of the misinformation, disinformation about vaccines now. A couple other things. One is now understanding more about trauma-informed care. And we used to just think about when kids were problems, we asked the question, what the heck's wrong with you? Now we're more inclined to say what happened to you and to try to get back into what, what we can do to help nurture them going forward instead of just put the clamps to them. The other thing that's been exciting is support groups. As a medical geneticist, I dealt with a lot of families that had rare and unusual conditions. And they would come to me, they would come to you know other doctors and say, well, tell me what I can expect. And most of us knew I had no idea what they could expect, except what we read in the textbooks about 10 patients. But now that these support groups have come along for these various conditions that are rare, but now hundreds of people around the country and around the world can get together and say, this is what I think you can expect. This is what, how we dealt with sleep issues. This is how we dealt with diet issues that your doctor has no idea how to deal with. So support groups have just been tremendous. And that's one of the positive things with the internet and computers. And the last I would go ahead. I'm sorry. And no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, and, and, you know, just care for the medically complex. At the end of my career, I was for the last two and a half years, I was taking care of children with in a medically complex clinic and seeing that integrated team approach, helping those families in a much more integrated way than trying to fight the maze of medical care has been a real exciting thing for me. I think to your point of community and support groups, that has been one of the great things about the internet and social media when done properly. That has not been something that has been taught to pediatricians or internists or physicians at home. We're still very much each in our own library and we don't do enough mastermind groups or coaching groups together to generate ideas and understand how other, so how others might have seen the same problems and solved them without me having to spend three hours agonizing. That has been a positive impact. There's been a lot of negative impacts, but that has been a positive impact. What do you think is our biggest challenge as pediatricians now? What do we still need to do? Couple things. Pediatricians are still trusted, <clears throat> but there has been this erosion of trust in the pediatric community as a whole. I think local pediatricians are still very much trusted, but there's been this distrust that has really fomented with the pandemic that unfortunately people have been able to attack us that has been so unfortunate. I think that's a huge challenge. The other big challenge, and maybe we can get into that later. I think our well child care is, is pardon my language here, is bass backwards. I think we are concentrating on, unfortunately, because of the computers in the exam room, we're concentrating on check or checking the boxes and not concentrating as much on developing the rapport and the trust and dealing with the really important issues. I've always argued, and I understand this is hyperbole, that we could not lay a stethoscope on a child uh, and do perfectly fine and really address more important issues during the time we're in the exam room. Well, I, I totally agree with you. I think started with healthy kids or 
that two-page thing you're supposed to go over in every physical with parents. Bright uh, futures? Or bright futures. futures. Yeah, bright. bright futures. Just I can't stand that idea. I'm not a computer and my patients are not computers. I'm not just the data point. What's enjoyable about the well-child exams is that relationship. And it's often the mother when you just let her talk that says, you know, Johnny's my third kid and he doesn't talk like the other two. You think there might be something wrong? Oh yeah. Well, let's see. It's just about listening. It's just I, about. I, I think the bright futures has value, but I think it should be a guide only, not a absolute. When I use it, I go in the room and I read the room. All right. And I talk to them about what I think their kid is doing, what their family dynamics has. You know, if I see a rambunctious kid running all over the place, of course, I'll talk to them more about safety than about potty training. And I won't talk to them about guns because they're not a police officer. So you got to focus on what the, the room is doing, what the patient is doing, I think. But a lot of physicians, that's where they get stuck with, I have no time. They have to do the 15, 20 bullet points and they talk and they talk and they talk and they talk and they never get out of room. Well, the end of my career, the last eight years of my career, I was a medical director of the the largest Medicaid clinic in the, in the state of South Carolina. So I felt that pressure as soon as I walked through the door to get through and get to the next patient. So we needed did to, and I tried to start this process, but never got through it. We need to reconfigure the well child check. In our clinic, we needed to have more ancillary people helping us collect data so we could be more impactful in terms of what really matters. Because I, think we could have a chance to what I, what I configure, what I call WCCTM, well, child care that matters. Yes, I, absolutely. I really like that. I think we need to get back to the relationship and not so much to these uh, gathering data points put into a, la a laptop to report to the government. To your point about respect, it's been a very hard three years. The the national conversation has been around decisions that are made without our input as general pediatricians and people of all colors, meaning the ones that wear the red hats and the ones that wear the blue hats, both have uh, complained about what is it that pediatricians are thinking today. And it's hard to defend even at the, at the cocktail party or the barbecue. When people from both sides just tell you what's going on, what happened to you guys? You guys have no common sense anymore. I'm a strong advocate of the leadership of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I just rolled off as chapter president of the South Carolina chapter of the AAP. And we're, we're trying hard, but it's hard to get that message, message out there in a viable way. Well, yeah, but it was hard when the AAP backtracked and supported closing the schools because everybody from the radiologist to the cleaning lady that I know, they all think that it hurt their kids. That cleaning lady doesn't read what the AP says or what the newspaper says, but you better believe it. I hear it when I go to the cocktail parties, you know, that hurt my kid. My kid is not doing as well as he was two years ago. Um, and these are educated people. Where did that policy come from? Why? Why as a pediatrician can you support that? That is hard. That is hard because I have no control of what they do. Well, I actually did support that, but so I would respectfully 
disagree, but I understand, I understand the point. I understand the point. And so we're going to take a, a small break here and come back with part two with Dr. Soul, where we'll discuss his book, Conscious Parenting. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Pediatric Lounge. On the show notes, you will find links to our co-host and other important notes as well as a timetable of the topics discussed today. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a great review as it helps us greatly. In the meantime, we will see you next week. The Pediatric Lounge. The conversations are not intended as medical advice and the opinions expressed are solely those of the host and the guests.